The first thing we're looking to do is to simply give a voice to the thousands and thousands of male victims that continue to suffer in silence. And all we want is for men to be included in the conversation. So we will talk about women and men and boys and girls who are all victims of abuse. Being inclusive in language doesn't cost anything. And if we are inclusive in language, we'll begin to make inroads and prevent the dilution of professional curiosity. We have to look at what we want to achieve and actually think more outside of that stereotypical image if we are going to make inroads into underreporting. Good morning, hello and welcome to the AOCPP's podcast. I'm Wendy Thurigood, the Director of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. Today I will be talking to Ian McNichol about domestic abuse in men and what professionals need to know about it. But before we get into the discussion, Ian, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, good morning. My name is Ian McNichol. I'm an ambassador for Men Reaching Out. Thank you. If you don't mind explaining this problem and why it holds so much significance to you. Yes, it's um, the lived experience of domestic abuse that really completely changed the direction of my life. And, and just to set the context in response to the question, I experienced 14 months of abuse. It wasn't just physical. And that actually undid almost three decades of lifestyle and career choices. So just imagine the situation where your life changes to the extent where the only outcome you see is to plan your own suicide. Just think about that for one moment. You're planning to blow out your own candle. And just to peel that back a little bit further, my, my life, and I use that word really loosely, my existence was a day starting when I was told it would start and ending when I was told it would end, if at all. And in between that beginning and end, I did as I told, I didn't speak, I'd become robotic and barely functioned. So I have that lived experience and I'm very, very fortunate to be speaking with you today because I was actually two millimetres away from death. Ian, thank you for sharing your personal experience. I'm sure that has influenced how you practice today. I mean, it's a really raw account of why the subject is so important. You know, we can talk about the policy um, later, but but particularly I want to share as a health visitor, I was um, supporting a couple and I was supporting her in a view of postnatal depression. He was a very burly policeman and I always mirror the EPDS score and I noticed that his EPDS score was really high and I was really concerned. I, I didn't know whether it was the job or the pressure he was under of caring for his wife. And I just offered him a safe space to talk without thinking of the consequences. Obviously, his wife was there. And I said, just like I give you a safe place to talk, I'll, I'll offer him a safe place to talk in confidence. But that night, she took a, one of these sharp cones to him and stabbed him in the eye. And his abuse just escalated. Um, he had ended up in hospital many times, but hadn't told anyone. And um, as I say, this is when I was health visiting over 20 years ago. So it's something that stuck with me that I've always had that view, a very balanced view. But I still feel investigations that they are slightly unbalanced. 
And would that be your experience? I think that's a really important point that you make. And, and it's really important for me to say, actually, that not just at Men Reaching Out, but through the campaigning we've done, that there is no organisation that's supporting male victims that is seeking to have funding taken away from organisations supporting female victims. In fact, we would sign up to resist that if that situation ever evolved. And we, we also importantly recognise that there are more female victims of domestic abuse. But the position we adopt, which is the platform on everything we do, is that everything we do and say is trying to prevent what we believe is the worst impact, which is what's known now as a homicide. We have this American phraseology, don't we, for when these tragic circumstances evolve. And lessons have to be learned from those homicide reviews. Now, what, what we're saying is that there are a number of high-profile strategies. So we have ending violence against women and girls. We have Claire's Law as an example. And they're not helpful for male victims, and they're not actually helpful for female victims because those strategies tend to evolve into conversations that focus on the what's known as the stereotypical image, so the female victim and the male perpetrator. So how is that going to encourage females in same-sex relationships to come forward, for example? And what we've seen over time is that we believe there are certain groups within our society who have become harder to reach. So not just male victims, females in same-sex relationships, elderly victims, so people perhaps over the age of 60, disabled victims, LGBT, who are often overlooked when we have a conversation around domestic abuse, or certainly when we think about the image that appears in the media. So those groups have become harder to reach. They then by default find it harder to disclose. And one of the reasons that they find it harder to disclose is that they don't always recognise what's happening to them as domestic abuse. And that's where the dots join up. How can I, as a disabled female in a same-sex relationship, be a victim of domestic abuse if the imagery is one of a white, able-bodied, heterosexual female cowering in a corner with a guy with a clenched fist? And I think we have to look at what we want to achieve and actually think more outside of that stereotypical image if we are going to make inroads into underreporting. So how is particularly your organisation, A, actually getting the message out, and, and B, how can we raise the awareness even more in relation to this topic? So, so in terms of what we're doing at Men Reaching Out, and we, we work on a national platform as well, is that the first thing we're looking to do is to simply give a voice to the thousands and thousands of male victims that continue to suffer in silence. And all we want is for men to be included in the conversation. So we will talk about women and men and boys and girls who are all victims of abuse. That, that you know, We can't get away from that, from that fact that anyone can be a victim. In terms of support, we, we have a, a, a helpline. We have what we call crash pad accommodation, which is emergency accommodation so members may think about refuges for females so now there's a requirement for all victims to have a safe space from which they can begin to rebuild their lives we have engagement with survivors who have that lived experience who are able to offer some words of support 
to people who have just come out of abusive relationships to say that, look, with some help, you can help to rebuild your life. And I think what straddles any victim is that the interventions we're providing are genuinely life-changing in each and every case. They can, of course, be life-saving in some instances because we know that people are killed by partners and ex-partners and family members. So in summary, we just want men to be included in the conversation, for them to be included in the strategies and to ensure that the spirit of the recently agreed Domestic Abuse Act, no victim is left feeling isolated or alone. No victim is exempt from support and that every victim has a safe place to flee to where they can begin to get that help and support and to rebuild their lives. In relation to the Domestic Abuse Bill, are you having conversations with ministers to make it more balanced? One of the constant challenges we face, and we've certainly been involved in conversations with the Home Office and with the Domestic Abuse Commissioner, the barrier that we encounter is that in response, and this is not coming from the commissioner, it's coming from providers of services for female victims, is we then get into the conversation around the gendered nature of domestic abuse. Now, that is a catalyst, and we believe that's a significant barrier, and I always become concerned when that language is used for two reasons. I was very fortunate to be part of the Home Office thematic group that was looking at male victims and it actually resulted in the Home Office producing a male victim position statement. And what they were saying was that what we mean by the gendered nature is there are some clear challenges for female victims that men won't have and there are some unique challenges for men that females don't experience. So let's give you two examples of that. Clearly, if there is a female victim who's pregnant, a man simply cannot have that challenge. But what we also know is that when we do the comparison check between male and female victims is that men find it much harder to disclose. They are three times as likely as females to not tell anyone. Half of the callers want to remain anonymous and men are more likely to recognise or sorry, not recognise that what's happening to them is domestic abuse. So there's clearly some additional work to be done to encourage men to come forward, to feel safe, to be believed. And we think that that gendered nature is part of that. And when we ask organisations supporting female victims what they mean by that, we get into this more conversation. There are more female. We absolutely acknowledge that. And where it becomes challenging, and I think one of the potential benefits of the masterclass. We would never today in the 21st century have a conversation on domestic abuse saying that, well, there are more white victims, so let's prioritise those. There are more heterosexual victims, let's prioritise those. There are more able-bodied victims, let's prioritise those. So when the conversation evolves from ending violence against women and girls, and we have the hard-to-reach group, it can result in more being done to encourage disabled females, LGBT females, elderly females. And of course, that's simply creating more barriers for male victims who are already in those hard-to-reach groups anyway. And I think, in summary, what we're saying, being inclusive in language doesn't cost anything. And if we are inclusive in language, we'll begin to make inroads and prevent the dilution of professional curiosity 
because there's no doubt not all professionals are aware of the challenges that male victims face and they don't always think about males in the same way. And so by making inroads into this professional curiosity and ensuring that people always remain professionally curious, we will see improvements in the non-stereotypical victims, these harder-to-reach groups coming forward. And in actual fact, we think some of them have already come forward. So if I may just take a moment to give you one scenario. We could have a male or a female who's gone into their GP surgery suffering with anxiety or eating disorder or they've turned to alcohol or substance abuse. They're signposted into the mental health system and several weeks or months into that support, they disclose domestic abuse as the root cause. We want to ensure that all of these organisations are then responding to that and delivering the wraparound care so that they carry on dealing with that mental health issue, but also the domestic abuse specialists are involved to give the support around the aspects of abuse. One really practical thing is just to reflect it in policy. Since we started talking, I have actually just pulled some policies and it very rarely reflects that males and other genders will be suffering. It's quite descriptive, isn't it, in the way they're run. So I think, you know, equally out of having your masterclass, I think we need to look at at sharing a really standard policy because I know GPs are very keen for triggers and to consider that. And it is a subject that as I've been talking about it, people have have recognised certain cases where that possibly could be identified, but it hadn't been top of their list to consider. And you mentioned a really key group in relation to disabilities or um, elderly. And again, it sometimes comes down that the mental capacity is assessed and it's perhaps marred by what they're actually going through. So it certainly needs exploring and and raising awareness far wider, doesn't it? Absolutely. And a a couple of brief points on that. And it's, it's something to reflect upon. But I can't remember the last time I saw as part of an awareness campaign an image of two females as portraying abuse within LGBT relationship or a female in a wheelchair, for example. And so that actually is not embracing in full the ending violence against women and girls strategy. And the other point around the GPs, which you've raised, which is really interesting, we've raised concerns about the IRIS, which is Indigo Romeo, Indigo Sierra, that training programme that's been rolled out to some GPs because it only looks at female victims. So if if the GPs are not being trained and educated to look out for the signs in male victims, and we know I'm a man, men just generally find it harder to go to a GP irrespective, that again is creating another barrier. So language is a definite barrier, and we would say that the language has to evolve to become inclusive to help support the keynote message from the domestic abuse act which is that all victims must be supported. So language has to evolve at the same pace to deliver that. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't covered in relation to the misconceptions against men and and how we really need to debunk this myth? Absolutely. And and, and we see barriers in in different areas. So just, just as one example, we've had conversations recently with a high-profile deliver a perpetrator program. And what they said is that they actually undertake additional screening tools for females because it's highly likely that they may have been a victim in a past relationship. 
So what they're saying is that if that victim is the sole perpetrator and the female is abusing her boyfriend or husband, if she's been a victim before, we have to take that into account. So, of course, we then ask, well, what position would you take if the man was the sole perpetrator and he was abusing his partner or wife, but he had experienced or witnessed abuse from one or both parents? And, and they just don't consider that. So there's another outcome from this gendered strategy. And what it's done, it's created a hierarchy of awareness, but it's also delivered both an empathy gap and what we call the believability threshold. So male victims have to overcome barriers to be believed. And we just think that today in the 21st century, to be treating people differently on the basis of their gender Actually, in the real world, it's unlawful. It's a real concern, and it's part of the problem today. And the elephant in the room, we would say, is that there are times when we're seeing language and strategies delivered to protect funding, and that's overriding protecting individuals. And we think that needs to change. Definitely, definitely. I could talk to you all day, Ian. I mean, it's a... Sorry, I know I've given you some real long-winded answers there. No, it's 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 really, really good. But what I just before we lose the thread, I mean, we're hosting this masterclass on the 25th of November and we can put on more. But it's called Breaking the Myth and Changing Perceptions of Domestic Abuse Against Men and Men Are Victims Too, rather. So can you just tell us a little bit, tell the listeners what they can expect from this course? Well, one of the things we want to do, and we, we think it's certainly deliverable is firstly, of course, we want to enhance existing levels of awareness and understanding to break some myths that men are victims to and to provide some information around that, to look at some of the particular barriers that prevent men from reporting. What can we do to encourage more men to come forward? And we'll certainly be shining a light on a piece of legislation that allows everybody not just in the workplace, but when we go home to our neighbours and communities, we want to be in a position where as people, we are looking out for the people in our lives, whether that's in our neighbourhoods or whether that's in our workplace. And we think that is eminently deliverable because that will allow us then to move forward so that individually and collectively, we're moving to a position where our message is quite simple. Abuse has no prejudice. And we need to be in a position where we seek to end violence against the person, as opposed to ending violence just against women and girls. And it's part of our modern day understanding of being inclusive in our approach. And my plea is to anyone that is listing this, that is in a position of authority, is that it does need to translate. It's a, a line of work that I pledge to you. We need to look at the policy that we can share nationally. And equally, we need to raise that awareness. The challenge to the local partnerships is they have to grasp the whole of safeguarding, contextual safeguarding. And you're completely right, Ian, because it's behind closed doors or friends or family or neighbours that actually witness that's going on. That's actually going to give them the courage to speak out and and have a voice for someone who at that moment in time may not have a voice. If I may just add and it was remiss of me not to include it as part of the masterclass, I will also be taking people into the 
lived experience of survivors of domestic abuse. What is it like to be a man? What happened? So, of course, people coming along to the masterclass, one of the key messages, we also want you to feel safe and we'll have things in place to allow you to feel safe, but you will be hearing some lived experiences to give you that genuine insight. Which is key. It's key. And my last plea is, this is a podcast that will be on our site. We very much talk about from sort of like policy to practitioners. And we hope that people maybe, if they Google and they explore male domestic abuse and they are in a situation like that, that they will come across you. We will be putting it on our website and we will be putting your charity there, the details. And equally for professionals that are struggling with some cases so they can sort of reach out to you to actually understand more about this subject. So, you know, thank you for speaking to us today. Ian. And I'm sure our listeners will have learned a lot. And I hope this gets listened to a lot. So for those of you who want to hear more about the work and where you can get help, please consider coming on our, our day, the 25th of November. And as I say, it is an event that Ian's more than happy to repeat because we do cap the numbers to make sure that you get the quality of the training and you will find Ian's details. So, so thank you for being so honest and transparent, Ian. And I, I hope this isn't the end of the conversation. It's just the start of the conversation. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want to discuss in future episodes, email us at hello at aocpp.org.uk. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.